Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 138 of the Burden of Command podcast. This podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what The Leadership Phalanx does, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X, all one word, dot com. And I'm your host, Earl Brian. Today's intro is going to run just a little bit longer than most, but my guest today absolutely deserves it. His name is Jason Redman. Now, some of you may be familiar with the name. Some of you, this may be the first time you're hearing it. But Jason has an amazing story. He's a retired Navy SEAL, author of two great books, uh, The Trident, The Forging and Reforging of a Navy SEAL Leader, and Overcome, Crush Adversity with the Leadership Techniques of America's Toughest Warriors. And then he has a brand new book out called The Point Man Planner, which is just meant to help you uh, plan your life. And uh, Jason talks a little bit about that book as well. We talk about all three books, but he talks about that book and what prompted him to write it later on in the podcast. I'll just let you uh, get in there. But this is a man who became a Navy SEAL almost lost his trident, re-earned the trust of his unit, gets back into the game, and then uh, he suffers some very, very interesting injuries that he'll share in the show. But what I want you to know about Jason and why you need to listen to this show is this. While he was recovering from those injuries, Jason felt a need to reassure and uplift the folks around him while he was recovering and uh, build an environment where he could recover back to 100%, whatever that meant. So you may have seen this poster, but what Jason kind of became famous for was this. It's a big orange poster board on his room that read, Attention to all who enter here. If you are coming into this room with sorrow or to feel sorry for my wounds, go elsewhere. The wounds I received I got in a job I love, doing it for people I love, supporting the freedom of a country I deeply love. I am incredibly tough and will make a full recovery. What is full? That is the absolute utmost physically my body has the ability to recover. Then I will push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense, rapid regrowth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere. From the management. Now that message is going to mean a lot more once you get into this and you hear what Jason was going through at that time. But that is just an amazing mental attitude to have. Uh, You will notice through the course of this interview that there are a couple of minor audio dropouts. That's because Jason is still fighting uh, for what he believes in to this day and is in D.C. raising money for Task Force Pineapple, which we will talk about. Uh, So bear with us on those. But with that, I think that is all the info that you're going to need to get excited and pumped about this podcast. And I'm going to get out of the way, let that stinger play and let you get into this outstanding interview with Jason Redmond. Jason, thank you for being a guest on The Burden of Command. Earl, honored to be on. Thank you for having me, and thanks for what you do. Oh, no, thank you, brother. I mean, uh, you know, as my listeners heard in the the pre-recorded bio there, uh, you've done a lot for this country. You're continuing to do a lot for this country. And I'm really excited to hear your take on the question where I start out all of my guests. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? 
You know, the burden of command is, uh, I think it is the inherent responsibility and weight that comes with being a leader that I think any good leader understands that a lesson that I had to learn along the journey is once you become a leader, you're always a leader. And I think good leaders are always thinking about the impact of their decision. Everything you say, everything you do, all the way down to the look on your face and even your body all carry impact as a leader. And I think that burden carries a lot of weight. Um, over time, leaders have to recognize anything and everything I do um, has an impact on the people that I'm trying to lead. And there's an inherent level of stress that comes with that. And I think that's why, I mean, if you look at just the pictures of the United, of, of US presidents and the four year time frame and how much they look like they age, if that's not an example of the burden of command, I don't know what is. Oh, no, that is, uh, I love that. And that's a great tie-in because it's true. I mean, we even have uh, mainstream media uh, showing us those age pictures. So I like that. Nobody's ever made that uh, connection before, and I didn't either. So I like that. Uh, but speaking of that, right, you, you know, the the mission, as you said, you're kind of always on. Once you're a leader, you're always a leader. And uh, let's take a second here because uh, you're joining us. You're kind of uh, out there still leading right now. And you're out here working hard for uh, what's been known as as Task Force Pineapple. Uh, so can you talk about that for, for a quick second for folks? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now, as this podcast was being recorded, we're roughly um, a little over two weeks out from the final evacuation of Afghanistan. And I won't get into politics, um, you know, regardless of where you fall. Um, it was a pretty rapid withdrawal. Um, from Afghanistan, and some people agree and some people don't. But the bottom line is that uh, two weeks ago, when that last U.S. plane left Kabul, we left behind American citizens and and thousands and thousands of special immigrant visa holders. And uh, for a lot of us that served in Afghanistan, uh, there's a lot of really amazing people who hold those visas and who did incredible things for the United States of America. And it did not sit well with us. These were these are high risk individuals that uh, literally uh, on special operations missions walked right alongside us and put themselves at risks at the same risk that we did to go in and go after the Taliban. And now the Taliban is back in power and these people are in grave danger. The Taliban is actively hunting them. So. Uh, Task Force Pineapple was stood up by Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, a retired Green Beret friend of mine, to get out a, um, an Afghan national commando who got stuck and, uh, and was in a very high risk and was in a dangerous position. And Scott made it his mission to get him out of Afghanistan. And the code word they used to navigate him through Kabul and to get into the uh, Karzai International Airport was Pineapple. And that's how it became Task Force Pineapple and the mechanism, this virtual underground railroad became the Pineapple Express. Uh, I came on probably about a week after that occurred um, or maybe five or six days after that occurred to try and help a friend of mine's interpreter get out. And uh, since then, we have now committed to honor the promise that the U.S. government made and get out all remaining American citizens and specifically all the amazing Afghan allies. And it has grown into an amazing movement bipartisan movement of individuals who believe that it's the right thing to do to get these in individuals out and honor that promise. So that's what we're committed to. And uh, that's what I'm here in DC right now having meetings on what is the next phase of all of this. Yeah, I know. And again, I really appreciate you carving the time out to be with me and my listeners. And, you know, thank you, you know, for your service and your continued service doing this. And, and just, you know, kind of clarifying, you know, because I know you've got this question a lot on your page. Tim Kennedy's got this question a lot on his page. You know, everybody who's talking about it has got this question a lot. Uh, you're not just like going out and picking random Afghanis and trying to bring them here. These are people who have have been vetted in some way. These are people who have contributed. These are our allies, right? Earl, absolutely. I mean, these are individuals who literally fought alongside us, who uh, interpreted at the highest levels. I mean, I saw one of the interpreters that is, uh, I believe, in Germany now uh, was an interpreter for uh, President Biden back when he was a uh, uh, congressman. So, I mean, these are people that have proven their loyalty to the United States of America and, and have applied through the special immigrant visa uh, 
process to come here to America. Many of them were already given approval. So that means they were approved SIV holders. Uh, many of them, unfortunately, the process got bogged down and was super backlogged as, uh, you know, America started to project that they were going to leave Afghanistan. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I'll be honest, some of these people are probably more American than some of the American citizens we have in our own country. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that 100%. Uh, you know, I, I love it and I love what y'all are doing and, and just appreciate you keeping it going and, and honoring that promise. It's kind of, you know, what America is here for is is to keep our promises. And uh, I'm glad to see that happening. Um now, so there's a lot of importance kind of around the date. You mentioned we're, we're here on uh, September 13th. Uh, we just uh, memorialized the 20th uh, anniversary of September 11th. Uh, but today is also, uh, I like what you call it, your, your rebirth day. So happy 14th rebirth day. Thank you. Yeah, uh, big day. It is. No, and I love it. And and so you share the story of what that means uh, in, in great detail in your first book, uh, The Trident, The Forging and Reforging of a Navy SEAL Leader. Um, and hopefully most of my listeners are familiar with it. But if you would, could you give a quick rundown of what that means? Why is this your rebirth day? Yeah, absolutely. Um it's, uh, I call it my rebirth day. Some people call it their alive day, but I feel like for me specifically, I got a second chance on this day exactly 14 years ago today. Um, and, and it's something that I speak so much on across the country and even internationally. You know, most of us only get one shot at this life. Uh, and unfortunately, when we come upon that point where we're going to die, it either comes incredibly quickly and we only have a few seconds or maybe it comes slowly through a disease. But usually you don't get a second chance. And I did. Uh, mine came quickly, um, you know, a 10 or 15 minute period uh, where I thought I was going to die. And uh, thankfully, my teammates and a lot of people helped save me. And and, and I'll back up and I'll tell a little bit about that story. But uh you know, we were at the end of our uh, our deployment operating in the Ambar province of Iraq in 2007, a really volatile and, and very heavy combat time in Iraq. Um, you know, a lot of the heaviest fighting that was occurring in Iraq, aside from probably, you know, the battle for Fallujah in 2004 occurred in 2006 and 2007. And we were getting after it. We were going after mid-level and high-level Al-Qaeda and insurgent leaders. And we had been hunting the number one leader for Al-Qaeda in the Al-Anbar province of Iraq our entire deployment. And on the night of September 12th, we got word that he was going to be in a specific uh, time and location. And we, we geared up and launched on that mission. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be the assault force commander for the actual target takedown. Uh, but as often happens, you know, you gear up for these big moments and, and nothing happened. We made entry on that building and, and the enemy was not there. We found a lot of activity or signs that someone had recently been there. And as we started to explore the compound, we started finding IED making components and things like that. But no, no humans were there. And um, so we really were, we were standing down. Um, we thought it was going to be a quiet night and um, got word. Uh, our sniper started saying, hey, you got a lot of activity on another house about um, 150 yards away, which it's now about 2 a.m. in the morning. It's now September 13th time frame. And uh, my boss, the ground force commander, came up and said, hey, we just saw some individuals run out of that house. Why don't you go check it out? see who they are. Let's find out and question them. Um, and obviously we launched on that. And the whole time I had, uh, you know, drones overhead and, uh, and even an AC-130 gunship up overhead and was, you know, hey, any weapons? What do we see? Nope. Don't see anything. They're, they just appear to be hiding. Uh, but to make a long story short, uh, they were not hiding. They were actually the last part of the security detail for uh, this Al-Qaeda leader, and they were part of an ambush line of about uh, what we estimate to be anywhere from 12 to 15 individuals with uh, two PKM machine guns. And my team and I walked right into that ambush. And, um, you know, three of us were shot up. I was shot eight times in that engagement between my body and body armor, two rounds in the left elbow, 
um, took a round off my side plate, front plates, um, took a round off my helmet, had my left night vision tube shot off, rounds off my weapon, and then I took a round in the face, um, which did a lot of damage. Um, I'd actually turned and it caught me right in front of the ear and it traveled through my face, exited the right side of my nose and blew out my right cheekbone. Uh, the bullet traveled right under my eye, blew out my orbital floor, broke all the bones above my eye and um, and and shattered my jaw and, and knocked me out. And my teammates thought I was dead. And literally they were shooting over me um, when I came to um, I, I was laying on my back and was watching tracer fire travel about eight to eight inches above me, um, totally pinned down. And uh, my guys did an amazing job. Um, fighting back, my team leader ran forward in that fire and got me back and got a tourniquet on my mangled arm, uh, which I thought had been shot off in the gunfight and, um, and, and basically saved my life. We ended up calling in a fire mission directly on our position, um, which was ended up being the closest fire mission in the enti entire Iraq war and miraculously survived nobody was injured from that fire or multiple fire missions and uh but that started a whole new journey um that that started a um you know uh almost a four-year process of 40 surgeries of getting put back together and uh it actually taught me a whole nother level of leadership uh along that journey oh i so, i can imagine four, 14 years 14 years ago today <laughs> yeah, no, man, I can imagine, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a peacetime Marine. I was uh, a Pogue. I, did, I, I, uh, was a weather guy. I briefed out some, uh, so, some C-130, uh, specters, um, you know, and, and got to know some of those crews and, and their outstanding folks. And when I read how close those rounds were, uh, you know, from 30, 35,000 feet up, I mean, it's just, that's a testament to, you know, why as much as we love given uh, as much as we love giving the Air Force grief, that's why we love to have them there, too. Right. I, I, hey, man, I, I will never knock the Air Force. Uh, <laughs> you know, I may poke a little fun to Adam, but guess what? I owe my life to them. And, and uh, that AC-130 crew was uh, very well decorated, uh, multiple distinguished flying crosses and air medals for that mission. Yeah, no, I love it. Well, and, and so you, you talked there about another level of leadership, but uh, if you don't mind, I want to back up a little bit further than that, because, you know, I think this is an important story. And look, listeners, uh, we're here to talk about Jason's uh, latest book, uh, Overcome, Crush Adversity with the Leadership Techniques of America's Toughest Warriors. And it's a great book in its own right. But but I, I think, folks, if you haven't read The Trident, you, you need to get both of these books because you share what I think is one of the greatest kind of leadership rebirth stories um, period with how you came pretty doggone close to losing your trident, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Earl. I mean, um, and I appreciate that. I do. I, people ask me, what is the trident about? And I tell them it's a, uh, it's a story of failure as a leader and then a redemption uh, as a leader. And when you talk about the burden of command in the beginning, I didn't understand that as a young man um, and as a young, uh, immature leader. And um, I walked with, I had, I had excelled like a lot of young men in, in different aspects of life. I excelled um, within the SEAL community pretty well as a young, as a young enlisted guy. And that's what earned me a place to get a commission. But by the time I got a commission, I had started to walk with two very dangerous uh, partners, and that is ego and arrogance. Mm. And I really thought pretty highly of my skills as a leader. Like, hey, I don't need anybody else's advice. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know what I thought that I was patent reincarnated or something. I mean, very <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> and um, and that. I, I would pick and choose when I wanted to lead, um, you know, and I would definitely was going down a path of, hey, do as I say, not as I do at times. So all of that kind of came to this perfect storm where I had made um, quite a few mistakes. And all of that culminated with a bad call on a mission in Afghanistan. And it, it probably would not have been such a, 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 
it probably wouldn't have been such a big deal, the bad call itself. And and if you want to, you know, I won't get into all those details. I get deep into the details in the book, The Trident. But the bottom line, why it became such a big deal is because I, I fought so hard against it. I was adamant that I was right. I was adamant that I was the victim, that they were just throwing me under the bus. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't take a step back and say, hey, dude, guess what? <laughs> you know, you're the reason you've got these problems. You know, this is poor leadership on your part. And, and it took months to really come to grips with that. And I'm really fortunate that they didn't kick me out because they were well within their rights to have done it. Um, and there were guys in the SEAL teams that I worked with who said, kick him out. That guy's dangerous. He's going to get somebody killed. And uh, thankfully, I had some leadership that said, you know what? This guy's got a lot of talent. He's, um, you know, he's got a lot of potential. We just need to humble him. And that's how I, uh, <laughs> that's how I earned a vacation at U.S. Army Ranger School for a few months, uh, along, with, uh, along with some other colorful, um, you know, colorful things designed to help me grow up as a leader. Um, and, and they worked. And I'm really fortunate that my leadership believed in me enough because there were definitely some enlisted guys that I work with that were like, we don't want to work with that guy. And, um, and, and that journey of going to ranger school, I'm finally kind of humbling myself and come to realize that I was the problem, um, that it wasn't anybody else. I, I wasn't a victim. Uh, the only victim I was was the one that I had made in my own mind. And it was out of ranger school that I really started to find in my mind, you know, how I needed to be as a leader. And now what I teach to people all across this country, um, you know, there are three rules of leadership. And rule number one is you've got to lead yourself. 70% of leadership is your ability to lead your how you deal with it. And, uh, you know, positivity in the face of negativity and all these things. Rule number two is how we lead others. And it's not necessarily telling other people what to do. Uh, the majority of rule number two is accomplished by rule number one. You know, most of the time before you ever open your mouth, people have decided whether they want, they want to follow you or not. Um, but it's much more about that other 30% when we're leading others. It's about how do we motivate and inspire them? How do we give them the resources that we need? How do we, how do we give them the guidance and then trust them to execute it and even allow them to mess up a little bit as long as you gave them that guidance so they have ownership? And that's how organizations grow faster and farther. And then the last component of leading others, how do we hold people accountable, um, you know, for those things that we gave them, give them those right and left limits and hold them accountable to those things. And then the last component, the one that I definitely wasn't doing, and I think the one that uh, falls under the, the biggest burden of command is you have to lead always. You can't pick and choose when you're going to lead. And as a matter of fact, it's usually in the hardest times when the storms are the darkest, um, when your ability to lead is tested the most, but you have to step up and lead in those times. That's when it's the most critical. And uh, those were the three rules I walked out of Ranger School with, and I've tried to live by uh, ever since then. Yeah, no, and I love it. And I love the, the way you tie that in there because, you know, that's one of the things, and I'm sure you've ran into it in the civilian world, you know, run into, hey, I'm CEO, hey, I'm this, I, I am the leader. And, and they don't take the time to, as you mentioned, to earn that trust, to earn that followership. And, you know, if you're not taking that time, if you're not investing in your team, whether it's a SEAL team, whether it's a, a sales team, if you're not taking that time to build those relationships and earn that trust and, and respect, you're not really a leader, right? You're not. You're a manager. And uh, there's a big difference between a manager and a leader. Um, and there's a lot of people who, especially in the business world, oftentimes they don't understand the difference between those two terms. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. So the Trident was a great book, received a lot of, of success and, and accolades. Um, what, what got you to uh, decide to dip your toes back in the author water and write overcome? So I tell people the Trident is the story, but so many people would reach out to me. And even when I was speaking, they would ask me questions that I could not answer. Um, you know, they would say, how did you do this? You know, when I read the Trident, they're like, it's such an amazing story. And there's so many leadership, uh, so many leadership stories in it. But how did you do that? And I could articulate it, but I couldn't. I had not written out like a step-by-step -step process. 
And Overcome became that journey of really trying to peel back the onion and, and, and for myself understand, well, how did I do this? Um, I just, you know, I described it as the Overcome mindset, which is what it is. But Overcome is now the how-to. And, and it is that process. How, how do you deal with the major adversity that we all get hit with in life, what I call life ambushes, those moments that come along and just punch you in the face or hit you in the face with a bat and, and, and knock you off your feet? And then you still have to get up or get off the X, as I talk about in the book, the X being any point of crisis, catastrophic event, major adversity. Um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that moment when it comes? And then as you're driving forward, how do we, um, how do we prepare ourselves for the future ones that are coming? And Overcome allowed me to look back on my life and, and, and look at and say, well, what were the major ambushes? What set me up for success? And what was interesting is I came to find out a lot of people wrongly assume that my battlefield injuries are the hardest thing that I've ever gone through. But that's not true. The hardest thing I ever went through was failing as a leader and being told you don't measure up to, to be a SEAL. Like we're thinking about kicking you out because we question your tactical and leadership abilities as a SEAL leader. And that's the hardest blow I've ever taken in my life. I mean, if you read the Trident, there's a moment where I put a pistol in my mouth and almost took my life because I didn't feel like it was worth living anymore. I couldn't face the future of what was happening. And, and thankfully, faith and a lot of different things came together that I didn't make that decision but it was that journey to come back and, and grind through the hardship of step by step earning back my reputation and my credibility as a leader. That was the hardest journey I've ever been through. And what was interesting, by the time I got to the other side of that journey and we're having this, uh, you know, heavy combat, you know, challenging, uh, leadership challenging um, deployment in Iraq. I was ready for that moment when it came. And that becomes a big question. I ask a lot of people out there, will you be ready? And, and it's an open-ended question. It's a rhetorical question because you never know what that moment is when it's going to come. But for me to be severely wounded, I was ready. And the reason I was ready because of the journey I'd been through before and overcome gets deep into the weeds on how you do that uh, within within your own life through self-leadership how we lead others to be ready how you lead always how we lead teams all these different things so that you can be ready for those moments when they come yeah no and i love that i mean that's where you start off the book is what is a life ambush and i think that's that's an interesting thing for most folks right because it's easy to quantify an ambush like what you've been talking about what you experienced uh in in combat but, you know, for some people, oh, I ran out of milk. You know, they're going to consider that a life ambush, right? Because their life is <laughs> is that easy, right? And then other people, it's like, oh, you know, my husband, my wife, my my whatever has COVID and, and now I don't know how to pay the bills and, and all this good stuff, right? That's a life ambush. It, it can take on a lot of different faces, right? Absolutely. I describe, and there's also different levels of ambushes. So I, I break them down into micro, mini, and then major life ambushes. So the micro ambushes, you know, everybody has micro ambushes all the time. They're, I call them the ambushes of the mind. But, but there are so many people out there that allow those ambushes to pin them to the X, and then they're just stuck and they can't move forward. They're the, they're the little voice in your head that tells you you're not good enough, you're not big enough, you're not fast enough. You know, you're the wrong race, creed, color, gender, religion, whatever it is. And you listen to it and you don't move forward because of that little micro ambush, that little, I, I call mine, you know, the demon that lives in my head. And, and, and that's, and that's, it's very insidious. And there are a ton of people out there that are stuck on the X from those little micro ambushes. And then there's the mini ambush and the mini ambush is something that comes along. I, I also call mini ambushes schedule disruptions. Um, this is something that comes along like, you know, something major COVID has been a pretty major schedule disruption. And depending on some people, COVID obviously can become a major life ambush. And that becomes the highest level, the major life ambush. I define a major life ambush, anything that will forever leave emotional, physical, mental, or deep financial scars. You'll never fully recover from them. You will always, when you look back on any major life ambush, you will always feel the pain that came with it. 
And, and I break it down from the, the lower level. It may be the ending of a long-term relationship. It could be a divorce. It could be a major business or professional failure. It could be a bankruptcy. It could be a lawsuit. And from there, it starts to go up from, you know, uh, grievous personal injury, life-threatening illness, injury or illness to someone you love, sexual trauma to you or someone you love, uh, the unexpected loss of someone. And one of the biggest ones that I, I see as a life ambush is the uh, uh, unexpected loss of a child. So those are major life ambushes. These are things that just pin people to the X and they don't know how to move forward frequently. Yeah. No, I, I, you're right. And, and, uh, you know, I think in the, in the psychological world, uh, the term that's really kind of, it's been around for a while, but it's really catching on is, is moral injuries, right? Those, those big things that you talk about are, are creating these, these moral injuries, uh, that, that do. And when you look at the, uh, uh, I mentioned this on here before, but the reason they call them moral injuries is when those things happen, those big things like what Jason's talking about here, they line up on the brain, like, if somebody were you know breaking a bone, they, they light up the same pain centers and they create physical pain. They create physical trauma that, that shows up on brain scans. And so these things, you know, they, they, they may not necessarily do harm that you can see, you know, but this is a lot of the stuff. I mean, you know, you mentioned your, um, uh, I'll say kind of uh, run in with uh, almost committing suicide there, but these are the things that a lot of our brothers and sisters at arms right now deal with on a routine basis, which is why the veteran suicide epidemic is as high as it is. Right. I, absolutely. And, and I tell people, I try to explain to them, you know, the, the human body or the human mind, when it goes into fight or flight mode, it doesn't say, oh, my God, these are bullets shooting at me. Um, it only says this is a dangerous or a super high stress situation and it starts dumping adrenaline and cortisol into your system. And, and I tell people, you know, I survived an enemy ambush, but everybody in life gets hit by the bullets and bombs of life. And depending on what ambush you're going through. Um, if you were to hook me up to all these medical devices, you know, 14 years ago on that battlefield in Iraq, and we hooked you up to medical devices, whatever major life ambush you're going through, perhaps it's your child has been in a car accident and is in ICU, we would read almost identical. My brainwave activity, my breathing rate, my heart rate, you know, all these things would be almost identical because the human brain doesn't say, well, I'm being shot at. It only says, this is a major crisis. This is a major emergency. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jason, so uh, getting back here kind of uh, into the book a little bit, uh, one of the things I love that you, you've developed, and, and I, I mean it, I really love this uh, idea because I see triangles and all this other good stuff uh, being shown out there for leadership and, and, and different principles. But you developed something uh, that you relay in the book called the Pentagon of Peak Performance. Uh, let's talk about that for a little bit. So did you set out to, to to be different and create a Pentagon or did it just kind of settle out that way? It just settled out that way. Um, and it goes back to the how-to with the, with the Trident. How did you do this? And when I look back on that journey of how did I launch so quickly out of that hospital bed and, and launch a nonprofit and, and, you know, become this face of the wounded warriors with this overcome mindset and the, and the sign on the door and all these different things. When I started looking at it, I realized that I was strong in these key areas and it ended up being five key areas. Um, and those five key areas are number one, the foundational level is physical leadership. I was in amazing shape when I got all shot up. I was screening for the next level of, um, of SEAL team. Uh, you know, I got myself back on track. My career was on course, the next level of leadership for me. And I was screening for that team. And there was a pretty rigorous physical test that came along with that screening. So along with conducting combat operations and, you know, 50 pounds of gear every night, I was also training uh, heavily to get ready for that, that test. And doctors told me with the amount of blood that I lost, it was a miracle I survived. And they said, your fitness directly contributed to your survival. But, but it goes even further than that. And that's something that I talk to people about. I mean, hopefully you're never in a situation where <laughs> you've lost so much blood that, you know, your fitness saves your life. But what we know for a fact is that, you know, when I talk about physical leadership now, I talk about, you know, fitness, nutrition, and sleep. 
And, and those things play a huge part because it, it, it impacts our ability to handle stress. It impacts our ability to have high levels of energy. It impacts our ability to think clearly and, and, and be optimal on how we're doing things. All these things are a huge part of being an effective leader. N number two is mental leadership. So before I got myself in trouble, I didn't have a whole lot of mental leadership. And, when, and what do I define mental leadership as? Well, mental leadership is constantly challenging your beliefs, um, accepting that the, your journey of learning is never over. So you should constantly be reading. You should constantly be looking at you know, different situations within your field. You should be seeking out mentors and different mentors, mentors who look at things from different viewpoints. How do you surround yourselves with other people to constantly be smarter you should do things that are outside of your comfort zone you should be volunteering for things that you're like i don't know if i could do that but you should be volunteering for that because that flexes our mental muscles um, that is how we build an overcome mindset that's how you get outside of your comfort zone and get stronger um the, the last component of mental leadership that I've only added in in the last couple of years is money, how we manage our finances. But I will say that's something I speak on now. It wasn't something that played a difference for me um, to be ready for that ambush, you know, from my from my injuries. Um, number four is emotional leadership. How well do you manage your emotions? And and for me, this was my weakest area. Actually, my my. Monday muster this morning was about emotional leadership and calm and the chaos. And I used to not be that way, but a good leader manages their emotions. They understand that they, they need to, to be fairly even keel. And a good leader also recognizes strong emotional leadership um, is not ranting on Twitter every other moment uh, because you don't like the way something happened or you feel like you're being treated unfairly or whatever. I mean, I don't care what it is. I watch people with weak emotional leadership who lash out at other people who can't control the round hole in the bottom of their face. I watch people in relationships that la lash out at, you know, their spouse. And, and when I watch them do this, they're not accomplishing anything. And a leader should always be thinking about what's the end state of what we're trying to accomplish here. And, and if, if what I'm saying isn't contributing to that, then, then that's weak emotional leadership if you're saying it. And we're all human. We all have moments where that happens, but being aware of it and focusing on it and, and choosing positivity in the face of negativity. The sign on the door is my big example of, of, of strong emotional leadership in a hard moment. And number four is social leadership. How do you how do you invest in the teams of people around you, um, specifically from the bullseye innermost ring, which is your direct friends and family. And from there, it goes to your close friends. Uh, from there, it goes out to your acquaintances. And from there, it goes out to your work relationships. And uh, I was fortunate enough when I was wounded that, you know, I had made this long journey. Go back to when I'd had that leadership failure. Man, I had burned some bridges. And I didn't have strong social leadership. I definitely had guys who were like, I don't want to work with that guy. But by the time um, I had been wounded, I had built all that stuff back up. You know, tremendous strong, you know, social leadership with my friends and family and tremendous strong social leadership with my teammates. And then the last one is spiritual leadership. Um, you know, my faith was very strong when I was wounded. That plays a part for me. And I tell people, you know, maybe that's not your gig. Maybe you're not, um, maybe you're not an organized religion type of person. And that's okay. Cause spiritual leadership isn't just about faith. It's about getting outside of yourself. It's about recognizing that the world doesn't revolve around you and that there's a lot of people out there that have much bigger problems than you, regardless of how big you think your problems are. And by having that perspective and investing in other people, whether it's charitable donations, charitable giving, you know, I don't know, but working with Afghan refu refugees, trying to get them out, whatever it is, that's how you build strong spiritual leadership. And if you put time and effort into those five key areas, you will be balanced as a leader and you are better prepared to withstand the life ambushes or the storms when they hit you. Yeah, no, I love it. I mean, and, and they're so well put together because, I mean, I, I like the way they flow and, and I like uh, I like the way you explain them, you know, how you just hit, did now and, and in the book. And it reminded me of, you know, and I know the SEALs say this as well, but it was one of the things that they pounded in their head in boot camp and, and uh, basic combat training uh, in the Marines was that whole concept of get comfortable being uncomfortable and, and, and being able to build 
on all of these five uh, th- these five pillars of the Pentagon here, because you know, as you mentioned, the physical uh, the physical piece, the mental, the emotional, the social, the spiritual, you know, those were all key tenants. They they never really came out and and said, hey, we're working on physical uh, leadership, we're working on mental leadership, but but it was what we did every day, day in and day out, and and yeah, uh, folks. I don't know if you caught what Jason said there, but on his uh, social media accounts, he puts out uh, the the Monday muster. And uh, when you were talking today, brother, man, that just you you were speaking straight to my soul because that's when I I struggle with uh, even to this day. I, I'm, I'm a lot better at it. I have to make a conscious effort to to bite my tongue when somebody gets crazy on social media or whatever. But uh, I think I had a it was a friend of mine, a gentleman named Dov Barron. Uh, he he defined it. He said it's uh, he goes it's it's almost like vomiting. You know, sure you feel better, but you make everybody else around you sick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so true. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so you know, folks, uh, we'll have some links to to Jason's uh, social media stuff here in the show notes, and we'll get that out here in a second. But you know, again, uh, I, I love I love these these five and. Um, you know, as you're going around and you're working with leaders and you're doing all the things that you're doing, and you know, there's this big craze now uh, with military leadership becoming more popular in the civilian world. Um, what is what is the one what is the one thing that you see civilian leaders struggling with the most as they try to adapt and adopt uh, a more military style leadership profile? I think the civilian world is is really, and this is going to be an interesting thing because I, I there are going to be some in the military who are going to disagree with what I say here, and I think it comes a lot more from the special operations world, and and that is in the civilian world there seems to be gatekeepers for both information and decision making processes. So I think the hardest thing for leaders to do is teach your people how to do things and then trust them to do them, push that decision making down to the lowest level. It's going to allow your organization to move further forward. But on the flip side of that coin, you know, I talk about this in the book and Jocko Willing talks about this. Ultimately, you're the leader. So you have to take extreme ownership. So if things go totally wrong, guess what? It's not their fault. It's your fault. Because uh, obviously you did not teach them, give them the right limits, whatever it is. But but that probably is giving them the right resources, giving them the right you know right and left limits to execute it, and then trust them. Let them go out and do amazing things because that's what they're there to do. And I think frequently in the civilian world, leaders are are there's so much bureaucracy, especially in bigger organizations, and leaders have a chokehold on their position. And, and there, it's just wicket after wicket for information or decision making to flow up and then to flow back down that, you know, everything gets slowed down because of that. Mm. No, I'll agree with you 100 percent on that. And, and you know, it's funny because uh, I, I could hear Jocko's voice in my head, the the dichotomy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but no, I, and I agree with you because I think that's one of the things that I run into uh, quite a bit as well is is I have even say when I'm, I'm giving my training is, you know, one of the most controversial things that I'm going to say right here right now is if the team fails, it's your fault. And I get a lot of people push back and say, hey, you know, well, but Johnny didn't do this and do that. Why? Like you just said, you didn't give him the resources or maybe you put Johnny in a position that he was set up to fail at. You didn't know that. That's still your fault. Uh, so I agree with you 100 percent on that one. Have you had any success uh, getting civilian leaders to really kind of grasp that level of ownership? No, I think it's happening a lot. I think a lot of leaders are looking at the military example um, that's out there, Um, especially one of the unique things that's happened, I think, in the last 20 years of warfare is we have fought a very nebulous enemy, which has caused the U.S. military, uh, specifically a lot of special operations, become a force of choice, although way overextended. And that's a whole other conversation, you know, probably overused. But the model that we utilized, I think, is very effective 
And, and I think it translates. I mean, when I talk to people frequently, I'll come in and speak and, and I'll hear, oh yeah, you're a Navy SEAL. Of course you can do that. And I say, listen, you know, leadership is leadership, whether you're a Navy SEAL or whether you're an attorney or whether you're a doctor or a teacher or a police officer or even a sanitation engineer, it doesn't matter. Leadership, leading people is the same across the board. And, and the things that I speak on, I don't get into super high level strategic organizational growth and things like that. I, my focus predominantly, if, I, if I'm coming in to talk to your organization, my primary focus is on self-leadership and that every single person in that organization is a leader. And if you can build your team of people in your organization with the different teams and departments with it, that everybody understands they're a leader and you encourage them to make decisions and you give them the guidance to do that, are they going to mess up sometimes? Absolutely. We're human. We all do. But I guarantee your organization will grow faster. It will grow further. You will be able to do more. And, uh, and that's all just embracing this, this mindset of, of a bunch of leaders getting out there and making things happen. No, I love it. Well, brother, I want to be cognizant of your time because I know you got a lot of uh, important stuff that you're you're doing and and uh, you know changing lines for a lot of people out there. So, uh, is there anything that we hadn't had a chance to touch on over these last forty two minutes or so uh, that you really want to leave listeners with? I, I will leave. So, I actually just released my third book uh, not too long ago, and and it's called The Point Man Planner. And during COVID, um, just a real quick story. I got really sick during that time. As a matter of fact, I thought I had cancer. I, I am calling it my fourth life ambush. Mm. Doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I lost like 35 pounds. Um, I, I have never felt that bad in my entire life. Um, and it turns out that I had a parasite that uh, created a blood disorder and it attacked my central nervous system. And in the middle of all of it, I remember one point just being miserable and, and, and thinking to myself, I wish I had a point man to like help me out of this situation from my time in the SEAL teams of having had amazing point men. And it made me, it made me say, well, gosh, why? What made point men so effective? And it led me to write what um, my third book, or it's not really a book, it's much more of a planner, but it's called The Point Man Planner. And it's based off four principles. And, and I believe these are the four principles that made SEAL point men so effective. But I know what I came to realize is they will make anybody successful in their own lives. And those four principles are number one, uh, a clearly defined mission and relentless belief in that mission. And I think there's a lot of people in life who don't have a mission. They don't know who they are. And, and your mission has to be built off your values. And then you've really got to boil it down. So the Point Man Planner teaches you how to get into your values and truly understand and write a mission statement. Number two is a clearly defined destination and a course to get there. So destination is our long-term uh, goals, you know, at a minimum a year, but usually three to five years out. And then our course is our short-term goals, which I break down into quarterly segments. And the Point Man Planner is a quarterly planning journal. Uh, number three is how do we assess risk and have great situational awareness? So many people just walk blindly through life or they go, they, they come up with a plan, but they don't really fully think it through or they're not, you know, on a regular basis updating and seeing where that plan is. And then situational awareness is how are we watching the things happening around us? There are potential ambushes happening all around us and most people are blind to the signs. And I talk about those signs in there. And then number four is the pivotal point of uh, overcome also. It is an overcome mindset to get off the X as quickly as possible. So when those ambushes come, yeah, don't lay there and feel sorry for yourself. Get up and drive forward. And the Point Man Planner is about how you incorporate those four principles into your life and then uh, live them day in and day out every day, making sure you are uh, tracking towards your destination, you're on course, you're living your mission. Mm, no, I love it. Well, brother. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. And thank you for being with uh, me and my listeners today. I really, really appreciate you. Earl, it's my honor. You too, man. Thank you for your service. Much respect for all the Marines out there. And uh, yeah, I, always, I always said, if I, if I didn't have a SEAL to fight alongside, man, I'd take a Marine any day. Oh, I love it. I love it. All my army buddies are going to think I'm going to get a bigger head than I got now when they hear that. Uh, so, 
Before you get out of here, I want to make sure that people know where to find you, how to find you, uh, if they want to get copies of any of the books, which you should. Um, and uh, is there anything that we can do kind of as I'll just say as a general population to kind of help and assist with uh, uh, Task Force Pineapple? I know that was a lot of things there, but uh, if you could hit us with that, I'll make sure they get in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can find me at jasonredman.com. That's my main web website. And from there, you know, you can book me for speaking. You can find my books. If you want a signed copy of my books, you can get them on the website. Uh, I also have two online courses, uh, How to Build an Overcome Mindset and 72 Hours to Peak Performance. So all those things are there. Uh, links to all my socials are there also. And then um, um, Task Force Pineapple, we are taking donations through Operation Recovery. So right now we're focused on the next phase, which is the long-term goal of keeping our amazing Afghan allies safe and then the plan to get them out of country. But then it goes even further than that. We're committed to resettlement and recovery. And we're actually talking about organizations like, you know, would American service members be willing to sponsor an Afghan family? Because what we don't want is them to come back here and, and just, you know, set up a mini Kabul. We want them to come back and be amazing, productive members of American society. You know, these are individuals that speak multiple languages. They've done a lot of different things. How do we get them out there potentially working within, uh, you know, DOD or different apparatus to use their incredible skill sets? So that's kind of the next phase that we're working on within Task Force Pineapple. Love it. Love it. Yeah, I live here in uh, outside of Indianapolis, and we just had a, a bunch of folks uh, – uh, set up down in Camp Atterbury uh, that, that came over from Afghanistan. So we're doing a lot of stuff uh, down there with that. So thank you for that. I'll get all that in the show notes. Listeners, thank you for your time and spending uh, this last 47 minutes or so with Jason and I. Uh, make sure you get on those links. Make sure you check out his social media. He shares a lot of great stuff. Uh, make sure you get the books. I promise you, you will not regret it. Uh, if you need anything from me, uh, comments, questions, concerns, burden.command at gmail.com. Um, you know, with that, folks, thank you for uh, rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so great folks like Jason can get their message spread further and wider. Uh, that's part of your mission, and you all do a great job with that. Thank you for everything that you do for us, and I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Are you a fan of classic cinema or a young person who wants to discover the best films of all times? Do these legendary movies still hold up? On the Generation Film Podcast, two guys who grew up when movies dominated the culture share a great film with a panel of young movie lovers and see how it plays for today's generation. We discuss changes in storytelling, styles, representation, and the making of each film, its initial reception, and how its meaning has changed over the years. Join us as we explore cinema classics across generations on Generation Film. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Oh, 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 o